So we're still dealing with the superiority of Jesus over John, as that's a major theme in the section, the early section of John's gospel that we're still in. A couple times in the prologue, verses 1 to 18, John is contrasted with Jesus. To make very clear, John was not the light. Jesus was the light. John just came to bear witness about the light. And then in the section immediately following the prologue, again, it's very, very clear John is not the Messiah. He's not a reincarnate Elijah. He's not the prophet who was to come. Again, it's very clear. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. Here again in the section before us today, we're focusing particularly on verses 25 to 34, which is basically the last half of the questioning of John by the religious leaders. We're still dealing with the superiority of Jesus over John. And as I pointed out last Sunday, we see in the section before us a twofold portrait of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that in verse 29, and we dealt with that at length last week. Jesus is also, in this section, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this week we will look at Jesus as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. As I said last week, these portraits of Jesus are obviously related. Not only do they appear together in this text, Jesus as the Lamb of God and Jesus as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but they're also doctrinally related. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not two different streams of the Christian tradition. As if there are the Jesus type Christians who like to focus on Him and the cross. And then there are the Holy Spirit type Christians who like to focus on the Holy Spirit and His power. There aren't two different streams of the Christian tradition. There are only Christians. Period. And Christians worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is a relationship, clearly, both textually in the passage before us and doctrinally, between the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God. Between atonement and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as promised last week, we will deal with the relationship between these two things this week as we consider not John the Baptist, But Jesus the Baptist, if you will. Jesus as the one whose baptism is superior to John's. Because that's what we see here in this section. That's the contrast that is brought out. John says, I baptize with water. He doesn't really complete the contrast. I baptize with water and he just kind of leaves it hanging. But among you, there's one who's more important than me. And he goes on to say in verse 33... He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The contrast here between John and Jesus is that John baptizes with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah spoke many years before the coming of Christ that the palace is forsaken, the populated city deserted, The hill and watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys. A pasture of flocks until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. 
and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then, when? When the Spirit is poured on us from on high. Then, justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Isaiah 32, 14-17 This is just one Old Testament prophecy of the coming Holy Spirit. Other places include Isaiah 44, verses 3-5, to which says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. Is he speaking literally? Well, what comes next? I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Then Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven: I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 37:14 I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Ezekiel 39:29 I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel declares the Lord God. Zechariah 4 verse 6 which is not about how you will overcome obstacles at work but how a place for God to dwell will be built. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then, of course, the famous passage from Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 and following. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. We see in the Old Testament, both the declaration that God will pour out his spirit upon his people, and then also generally what the results, corporately, of that spirit baptism of God's people will be. We see in the New Testament, more specifically, who exactly it is that baptizes in the Holy Spirit, what exactly spirit baptism is, who exactly it is that is baptized in the Holy Spirit, and what the results of that baptism are in their lives. So let's consider in turn, as we unpack this theme from John chapter 1, 25 to 34, those four points. Who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? What the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, who is baptized in the Holy Spirit, and fourthly, what the results of spirit baptism are in the lives of those who are spirit baptized. So let's begin with who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And the answer is obvious. It's right on the face of our text. It's Jesus. Look at chapter 1 and verse 33 of John. John bore witness, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33 says this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In His role as the head of the new covenant, and by virtue of His fulfillment of the conditions placed upon Him as mediator of that covenant, Jesus has received the Holy Spirit in order to turn around and pour Him upon us. That's what John chapter 1 verse 33 is teaching us. That's what Acts chapter 2 and verse 33 is teaching us. It is Jesus' role as the mediator of the new covenant to pour upon us all of the new covenant blessings, which include the Holy Spirit. It is the Lamb of God through whom the Spirit of God comes to us. As you've heard me say many times, so I say again, Jesus is the neck of the hourglass through whom everything our triune God intends to give us actually comes to us. But Jesus is like the narrow part of a funnel through whom Everything that our triune God intends to give us actually comes to us. Colossians 1.19 says that in Him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And John Gill comments on this verse that Paul is referring to dispensary communicative fullness. In plainer language, that means that Jesus is full in order to dispense. That Jesus is full in order to communicate. And to dispense and to communicate to us. God has filled Him as the head of the new covenant with all of the things, all of the blessings of the new covenant which are to be ours in Him. And so He is full with the dispensary communicative fullness in order to turn around and pour upon us all of the blessings of the new covenant. So with this principle in mind, but coming back to the concepts before us today, we can think of the issues at play like this. Not, if you need forgiveness, go to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if you need cleansing, power, and illumination, don't go to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go to the Holy Spirit. Not like that. Rather, if you need forgiveness, look to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you need cleansing, power, illumination, look to Jesus as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit, yes. 
who is the agent of empowerment, who is the agent of cleansing, who is the agent of illumination. And yet the Holy Spirit is not disconnected from Christ like Cave Shepherd is disconnected from Shaphat. Alright? If you need a roasted chicken breast sandwich, you go to Cave Shepherd? Shaphat. If you need a new watch, you go to Shaphat? No, Cave Shepherd. They are separate entities with separate services and products. We ought not to think of Jesus and the Holy Spirit like that. Where you need one thing, you go to Jesus. You need another thing, you go to the Holy Spirit. That's a completely wrong way of thinking about the relationship between the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God. Between the atonement and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Rather, and bear in mind, all analogies break down. Rather, the Holy Spirit is more like the technician that flow sends to fix your internet. If Jesus is your contract with the company, and the triune God is the company itself. Let me explain that. It is by virtue of your contract with the company that the technician comes to you. Try calling flow to come fix your Digicel internet connection. It's not going to happen. Because you don't have a connection to the company. But if you have a connection to the company by virtue of your contract, then everything that Flow is as a service provider is yours by virtue of that connection. Likewise, when we come to faith in Jesus, It is by virtue of our relationship to Jesus that all that God is, all that our triune God is to His people becomes ours. All that God is and has promised to be to His people and has promised to give to His people becomes ours in Christ. Including the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, because it is Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, we look to Jesus for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you have never yet come to Christ, and you recognize that you need forgiveness for your sins, look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we spoke about last week, place your hands on His head, so to speak, and confess your sins. That he might bear them outside the camp to Calvary, where he dies in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath that they deserve for their sin and removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west.
look to Jesus who answered the demands of God's law on behalf of sinners. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look to Jesus in order that you might be redeemed from the curse of the law and might become a son or a daughter of the Almighty God. And when you recognize that you need not only forgiveness but empowerment day by day, when you recognize that you need transformation after having been given a clean legal record because of Jesus' righteousness imputed to you, you're still a sinner and you still need to be changed. When you recognize that you still need help to understand the things of God and to perceive spiritual realities, don't then look away from Jesus. Don't then move away from Jesus as if He's done all that He can do for you. You got what you needed at Shaphat and now you're on to Cave Shepherd. Continue to look to the One in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And look to Him for the provision of His Spirit. Listen to John chapter 7, 37 to 39 which we'll get to at greater length in the course of time. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you are thirsty, come to me. If you need, as John Piper says, the river maker living in you, come to me. If you need the Holy Spirit, come to me, Jesus says. It's by virtue of our relationship with Jesus that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is given to us. Because as we're going to unpack a little bit more as we go on this morning, the Holy Spirit is not disconnected from Jesus the way that Shaphat and Cave Shepherd are disconnected. But the Holy Spirit comes to us as one of the blessings of the new covenant which Jesus has inaugurated. Of whom Jesus is the head. Of which we enjoy the privileges because of our relationship to Jesus. It's Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who is it? That's our first point, that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes 
with the Holy Spirit. And so John 7, 37 to 39 assures us that among other things, you will receive the Holy Spirit when you come to Jesus. And after all, receiving the Holy Spirit is what spirit baptism is. Let's unpack that a little bit more. What the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is nothing more or nothing less than receiving the Holy Spirit. God's giving and our receiving of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Holy Spirit are equivalent terms in the book of Acts. They're interchangeable terms in the book of Acts. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and verse 33. If you're note takers, write this down because I'm going I'm to go through a whole list of references that we're not going to have a chance to turn to. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17 and verse 33 that God poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That's the language used. Acts 2 verse 38 says that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God, which obviously implies the language of giving. And all of this is in fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. Where he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in Acts chapter 10 and verse 45, the language of the Holy Spirit being poured out is again used. And in Acts 11 verses 16 and 17, the terms baptism and a gift are again used. All of those things are being used interchangeably. The Holy Spirit being poured out. The Holy Spirit being given. Jesus baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. All of those are being used interchangeably in the verses I just cited to you. And you can go do your study on your own time with those references I just gave you. This is what God does through Christ. What God does. He gives... He pours out. He baptizes. All of these are interchangeable synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. As do the Spirit coming on or falling on certain people. See Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 16. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. Acts chapter 11, verse 15, and Acts chapter 19 and verse 6 for the interchangeable uses of these terms along with the aforementioned terms of pouring out, baptizing, and giving the Holy Spirit. All of those terms mean the same thing, biblically. They're used to actually describe the exact same events. The apostles move between the Holy Spirit being poured out Um, God baptizing people in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon people, the Holy Spirit falling upon people, God giving the Holy Spirit, the apostles move between all of these things interchangeably, seamlessly. So that's what God does. We read then 
that the disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts chapter 8 and verse 17. Acts chapter 10 and verse 47. Acts chapter 19 and verse 2. This then is the result of spirit baptism. God's people receive the Holy Spirit. It's clear from a study of the language that's used in all of these events, from a study of the biblical terminology, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is nothing more or less than God's giving of and our receiving of the Holy Spirit. This answer ought to raise at least three questions in your mind. First of all, what about Old Testament saints? Did they not receive the Holy Spirit? Well, let me begin by affirming that each Old Testament saint was necessarily regenerated. The same is true of human nature before the incarnation of Christ as is true afterwards. That by nature we are all like the rest of mankind, as Ephesians 2 teaches us, dead in our trespasses and sins. That the God of this world has blinded our minds. That this natural man or the carnal man is not able to understand the things of God. That was as true before the coming of Christ as after. In that age as in this age. And so in the Old Testament, anyone who was saved was necessarily regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So clearly the Holy Spirit existed, obviously, but I bear saying, because there's a lot of weird ideas out there. And obviously the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, and active redemptively in the Old Testament. And there's some debate about what I'm about to say. Even within reform circles, what I'm about to say is by far the minority position. But I believe, and I'll try to explain to you, that not all of God's people in the Old Testament, not all believers in the Old Testament, were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7 and verse 39, which I read to you already, says, For as yet the Spirit had not been given. What does that mean? The first half of that verse says, Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Which seems to me to indicate a then-future thing. In other words, there were those who believed in Him who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given. That's my understanding of John chapter 7 and verse 39. Then you think about some of the prophecies about the coming Holy Spirit that I read to you at the beginning. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 14 to 17. Until the Spirit is poured out. To me that implies that at the time of that prophecy the Spirit had not been poured out. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 to 5. I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. And then Ezekiel 
36, 27, Ezekiel 37, 14, Ezekiel 39, 29. I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. When I pour my spirit upon, etc., etc. To me, the language of the Old Testament itself indicates a future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, let me be clear about what I am saying and what I'm not saying before we move on here. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit was not active redemptively in the Old Testament. Because clearly the Holy Spirit had to operate upon the dead hearts, minds, wills of the unbeliever in the Old Testament in order to bring them to faith. But if the Holy Spirit does something to you, that's distinguishable from Him coming to abide within you. You can distinguish between those two things. My understanding is that in the Old Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was on an ad hoc basis. In other words, it was as needed for a purpose. It was generally kings, prophets, etc. who were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And even not all of them, I don't think we have biblical warrant to say were necessarily by virtue of their office indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then I think even where we're confident that someone was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I think we see indications that it was at least possibly temporary. So you see David in Psalm 51 and verse 11 praying, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is what I believe the Scripture teaches in this respect. The superiority of the New Covenant is that all of God's people are indwelt. And permanently so. More on this in a few minutes, but I believe that that is the major um, significance of Pentecost, which brings us to that very question. What was the uniqueness of Pentecost if some people had been given the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Again, the scope of it. Not just kings and prophets and those in a particular office for a particular time, but even on your male servants and your female servants, as Joel says. It's not just those who are prophesying and going to war on behalf of Yahweh who are filled with the Holy Spirit, but even on the lowliest person in Christian society, those who are of uh, lesser station, all of God's people will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit even upon your manservants and your maidservants. Joel chapter 2. Each without exception. And then secondly, the permanence. That again, in the New Testament, we don't have to pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I'm going to again elaborate on that a little bit more as we go on in a few minutes. But I want to consider another question then which flows from these first two. If Pentecost was each without exception having the Spirit poured out upon them, then what about Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19? Alright? Because this is a question that comes up or an objection that comes up uh, a fair amount from brothers in Christ, dear brothers in Christ from other traditions. 
other denominations. Alright, in Acts chapter 8, we see this. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm in the Gospel of John still. In Acts chapter 8, we see this. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, we read this. Uh, Paul goes to Cornelius' house, who, or Peter goes to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, and preaches the gospel to him. And then we read in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Then in Acts chapter 19... We read this. And it happened that while Paul was at Corinth, pardon me, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? Then they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, etc., etc. <clears throat> So the question is, if Pentecost was God's pouring out of His Holy Spirit upon each and every one of His people without exception, then what about Acts 8, 10, and 19, which seem to be exceptions? Again, we're going to unfold this a little bit as we go on. But for now, just let me simply draw your attention to this. There is an outline of the book of Acts provided in chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What the book of Acts then does is it shows the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples in Jerusalem and Judea, and then God's work in that region, And then the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples in Samaria and God's work in that region. And then God's, then the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles and God's work abroad. And it begins in Jerusalem, the book of Acts, and it ends in Rome. So that's the outline of the book of Acts. All I would draw your attention to is that we basically have three Pentecosts, if you will, in the book of Acts. You have the Jerusalem-Judea Pentecost, so to speak. 
There was only one feast of Pentecost, I realize that. But I think you understand the language I'm using. Then there's the Samaritan Pentecost, Acts chapter 8. And then there's the Gentile Pentecost, Acts 10, and I I would add, Acts 19. So those are some short answers. You probably still have a lot of questions, so let's keep moving forward. Alright, but here's... Here's the two questions that we've answered so far. Who is it that baptizes with the Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. The second question that we've answered is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is nothing more or nothing less than God's giving of and our receiving of the Holy Spirit. We saw that from a study of the terminology employed in the book of Acts. We began to dabble in some of the questions that might arise. Let's go on and we should answer at least some of these a little bit more thoroughly as we go. Here's the third question. Who is baptized in the Holy Spirit in our day? So now we're getting out of the abstract to the concrete. We're getting out of the, okay, this is interesting theological wrangling. What does it mean for us? We're moving towards that now. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, or at least implied, all Christians... In our day, without exception, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. All Christians in our day, without exception, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. Look at Romans chapter 8. Verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If God's giving of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with God's baptizing a person in the Holy Spirit, if God's pouring out is synonymous with God's giving, If our receiving is synonymous with being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which we just saw from the terminology in the book of Acts, this verse is very clear. If you have not received the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you have received the Holy Spirit, then, right, you are a Christian. Or if you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. Which means that by the time that Romans was written... Paul could say, if you are a Christian, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on you. The Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have received the Holy Spirit. Again, we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Okay, listen. Not by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Like you might say, if three or four people got baptized on the same day, you might say, in water, we were all baptized. That's what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 12. He's saying, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
What was the result of being baptized into the Spirit? We were all brought into one body. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. <clears throat> in Him, <clears throat> that is Christ, in Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And again, I want to draw your attention to the very specific words that are used. Not you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. With the promised Holy Spirit. Not by, as if the sealing were an act of the person of the Holy Spirit. An act which He performs instead of the Holy Spirit Himself. The Holy Spirit is here not said to be our sealer, but He Himself is our seal. Again, we, we read later in Ephesians chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Right. Again, John chapter 7, 37 to 39, which I've already read for you, and spoken a little bit about. But listen to this. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, like John 3.16, whoever believes, that's the qualifier, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes doesn't perish. There's no one who believes who perishes. There's no one who believes who doesn't have eternal life. Whoever believes... John chapter 7, verse 38. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. So where's the Spirit when someone believes? In their heart. You receive the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus. If the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with God's giving of the Holy Spirit, which it is, and our receiving of the Holy Spirit, which it is, then everyone who has believed in Christ Jesus in our day has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So why a two-stage belief and then baptism in Acts if we're to expect one unified event now? Right? The, the passages that I just spoke to you about a moment ago, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, even Acts 2, Right? The, the disciples that were gathered in the upper room were believers. Why had they not yet received the Holy Spirit? Why was, it, why was believing and being baptized in the Holy Spirit distinct events then? If you're hearing me loud and clear, we're to expect one unified event now. The book of Acts describes the early days around the time of the inauguration of the New Covenant. This period was also, by definition, a transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Since the New Covenant was only inaugurated once, or established, or begun once, so the things connected with its inauguration happened only once. Since there was only one transitional period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the things belonging to the transition 
between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant happened only once. The giving of the Spirit to all of God's people, listen, is a blessing connected with the New Covenant. It's for all New Covenant believers. The major event of Pentecost and the subsequent Pentecosts, if we can call them that, recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 19. These Pentecosts were connected with the inauguration of the New Covenant. There were lots of believers in the Old Testament who were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Though each of them had benefited from the Holy Spirit's work, they didn't receive His indwelling presence. Each of them that were alive at the time of Pentecost, and this is just another argument actually, incidentally, for my contention that Old Testament believers were not indwelt, because otherwise, what was Pentecost for them? But those believers... Believers who were alive at the time of Pentecost received the Holy Spirit as, they trans- as the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant occurred. And as the New Covenant was inaugurated, both those who were already believers as well as those who came to faith on the day of Pentecost received the fullness of the New Covenant blessings that Jesus had won for them. In his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And then his pouring out or his baptism of the Holy Spirit. Abraham Kuyper is a well-known theologian who is also, incidentally, the Dutch Prime Minister for a time. He provides an analogy of this once-for-all action and then its subsequent results. He draws the analogy of a city right, or a village that needs to get water to each home. And so they build an artificial reservoir and they connect the pipes from each home to this reservoir. There is a one-time action where the reservoir goes from being empty to being full. And at that time, when the reservoir is filled, all of the houses that are then connected are likewise filled with the water. As more houses are added, they are also filled. But that first act of filling the reservoir in the first place is not repeated. Because that has to do with the inauguration of that water distribution system. The filling of the reservoir in Kuiper's analogy is the Pentecostal experience of Acts 2, 8, 10, 19. As the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament is made. As the New Covenant is inaugurated. The Holy Spirit is poured out one time from heaven upon His people. That inauguration of this system whereby all who are believers in Christ Jesus receive the Holy Spirit happens and then from that time on anyone who believes receives the Holy Spirit one time at belief 
Whether that analogy helps you or not, here's the point. God's pouring out of His Spirit on each and every one of His people was unprecedented at the time of Pentecost. It hadn't happened before. Now it is the standard. So we've answered the questions, who who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? And that's Jesus. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's God's giving and our receiving of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we've answered the question, who in our day is baptized with the Holy Spirit? And we've seen all believers, whoever comes to Christ out of his heart shall flow rivers of water. That's the Spirit, Jesus says, John chapter 7. Ephesians 1, everybody who believes is sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, every believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, perhaps the clearest text of all. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. And so if the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's giving and our receiving of the Holy Spirit, then if you've come to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. What did this pouring out of the Spirit mean for the believers at Pentecost? What does it mean for us? That the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. In other words, even if we grant, even if you came in today confused about this and now you're clear, or you came in today with a different understanding and now that's been clarified for you, even for the sake of discussion, if you can accept that Jesus does the baptizing, what the baptizing is, is the giving of the Holy Spirit and our receiving of it, and that every believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit in our day what difference does that make that's the fourth question that we're going to answer what are the results of spirit baptism initially it meant that the believers at Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit now let me distinguish here coming upon the Holy Spirit coming upon falling upon being poured out upon being given being Jesus baptizing in the Holy Spirit, all of those are inter- interchangeable terms. Biblically, we have warrant to distinguish those things from people being filled with the Spirit. And I'm going to explain that. Being filled with the Spirit is the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out, of the Holy Spirit being given. Of the Holy Spirit coming upon or falling upon. Being filled is the result. It's not the action. It's the result of the action. John Stott notes helpfully in his book, Baptism and Fullness, that the fullness of the Spirit was the consequence of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism that Jesus did, or pardon me, the baptism is what Jesus did, Pouring out the Spirit from heaven. The fullness is what they received. The baptism was a unique initiatory experience. The fullness was intended to be the continuing, the permanent result, the norm. What does it look like when believers are filled with the Holy Spirit? Surely it's beyond the scope of today's sermon to answer this question exhaustively. But let's look at three. One uniform mark of the fullness of the Spirit 
is giftedness and power to serve God. Of course, for some of the early believers, this meant speaking in tongues as they were gifted and enabled. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 30 teaches us, even in those days, not all who were filled with the Spirit spoke in tongues. Therefore, tongues itself can't be a uniform mark of the Spirit in the sense that all who are full of the Holy Spirit speak in tongues. Rather, the speaking in tongues is an example or an instance of exercising a spiritual gift. And that, the reception of a spiritual gift and God's empowerment to exercise a spiritual gift, that is a uniform mark of the fullness of the Spirit. All, each and every believer, receive a gift of the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Holy Spirit by virtue of their baptism in the Holy Spirit, by virtue of receiving the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us in the use of it as we are filled with the Spirit. In simpler terms, the ability and power to serve God is a uniform mark of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All who are full of the Spirit are enabled to serve God. Christian, what this means for you is that you have a role to play in the body of Christ. Each and every one of you who are Christians, you have a role to play in the body of Christ. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, which I read for you, A few minutes ago, we read that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Immediately after that, Paul goes on to say, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And it's there at that point, right after talking about our spirit baptism, that he talks about Uh, He goes on an extended discussion of spiritual gifts and the manner in which we are each to contribute as we've been gifted and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you may not know, Christian, how you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, how you're gifted by the Holy Spirit, but you may certainly know that you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And that it's God's intention that in the fullness of the Spirit, you contribute meaningfully to the body of Christ. That's the logic of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So one uniform mark of the fullness of the Spirit is giftedness and power to serve God. Another uniform mark of the fullness of the Spirit is the transformation He brings. After all, He is called the Holy Spirit. You aren't full of the Holy Spirit if you're not growing in holiness. Ezekiel 36 and verse 27 says that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Christian, the fullness of the spirit will produce holiness in your life. Obedience to God's statutes and rules. Again then, You aren't full of the Holy Spirit if you're not growing in holiness. 
I'm preaching primarily to you. But for the sake of your discernment, no one is full of the Holy Spirit if they're not growing in holiness. Which means people parading around as if they're spirit-filled without living lives that are increasingly holy are frauds. You aren't full of the Holy Spirit if you're not growing in holiness. Another uniform mark of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is the perception of spiritual realities, including the glory of Christ and the love of the Father. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. In other words, the Spirit causes us to behold the glory of Christ, who is the referent of the word Lord in that context. He helps us see the greatness of Jesus. Romans 8, 15 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see that granting us a perception of God's fatherly love for us is a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In summary of this section then, we see that the fullness of the Spirit leads to giftedness and empowerment for service to God, holy obedience, and perception of spiritual realities, including the glory of Christ and the love of the Father. And all of these things are basic to a healthy, vitalized Christian life. What I'm about to say is really important. You can't, and I can't, and we can't live the Christian life properly without being filled by the Holy Spirit. We can't serve God properly. We can't grow in holiness properly. And we can't perceive spiritual realities properly. All of which are basic, fundamental to healthy vitalized Christian living. Though the initial giving of the Spirit always results in initial fullness of the Spirit, as God doesn't give inadequately, it's possible even for Christians to be no longer full of the Spirit, even having been baptized in the Spirit. Remember, everyone's been baptized in the Spirit. Every Christian. But it's possible, after having been baptized in the Spirit and initially filled, filled, it's possible for Christians not to be full of the Spirit. The command to be filled with the Spirit implies the possibility of Christians being otherwise. And we read that several times in the New Testament. The qualifications, the qualification that deacons be men who are full of the Holy Spirit implies that it is possible 
that Christians be otherwise. And the nature of what it looks like, what the results of spirit fullness is, indicates that not all Christians are full of the Spirit. There was a visitor who came to a church I used to pastor, which is similar to this one. And he had a long horn with him that I think he was hoping to use in the musical portion of our service and then realized it might not fit in really well with, you know, the vibe or the culture of our church. And afterwards he came to me and he said, not many people here are full of the Holy Spirit, are they? And I said, I said to him, actually lots of people here are full of the Holy Spirit. He was looking for the wrong signs. However, I would also be the first to say that some there that day, though Christians, though having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, truly weren't full of the Holy Spirit. He was misguided in what he was looking for. But it doesn't then follow that therefore everyone in a church that has a sound theology of the Holy Spirit is full of the Spirit. I would say that there are many here today among us who are Christians. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you're not full of the Spirit. If we take just the three marks that I gave you a few minutes ago, You've been gifted to serve God by virtue of your baptism in the Holy Spirit. But are you serving God in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is it just so clear to you and to everybody around you that the Holy Spirit is propelling you in your service to the body of Christ? That God is glorified in your service to the body of Christ as the Spirit empowers you in that respect. Or let's take the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings. Is it so evident to you and to the people around you that the Holy Spirit is causing you to walk in God's statutes? To obey His rules, as Ezekiel 36 and 27 says. Is it so evident that you are full of the Holy Spirit? Because we can all see you growing in holiness. We can all see you growing in conformity to the character of Christ. Is that so evident? Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Is it so evident to you to use the third mark that I gave you? Is it so evident to you that you are full of the Holy Spirit because you see the glory of Christ? Because you are beholding day by day the glory of the Lord. That each morning before you get to work or each evening before you lay down your head, whatever time it is that you open your Bible, That day by day you behold the glory of the Lord.
Is it so clear to you that you are full of the Holy Spirit because that's your experience? Is it so clear to you that you are full of the Holy Spirit because God's love has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit? That He testifies so strongly to your spirit that you are a child of God. Is that ministry of assurance so strong, so prevalent in your life? Are you listening so carefully to the Holy Spirit as He does that ministry? Does your life look like what we describe a Spirit-filled life looking like? And those are just three marks. We could presumably multiply that. But those are three basic things in the Christian life. Are you serving God? Contributing to the body of Christ in the power of the Spirit? Beholding the glory of the Lord, first of all. And then are you being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another? Because that comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Our visitor was looking for the wrong things as he looked for spirit-filled Christians. And so I challenged him on that. I said, actually, there are a number of spirit-filled people here. But some weren't. And still today, some aren't. Listen, some in other churches who may not have as biblical a doctrine of the Holy Spirit are more filled with the Spirit than you. They're seeing the glory of the Lord day by day. They're walking closely with Him. The Holy Spirit is bearing strong witness with their spirit that they are children of God. They're growing in holiness. As they see sin in their lives, they're repenting. They're moving forward. And some in those churches are less spirit-filled. This is not about... This is not about fundamentally getting our doctrine right. Though getting our doctrine right is going to help us as we try to live the Christian life. But there is actually the possibility of Christians who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit not being full of the Spirit. And there is actually an imperative in the Scripture. Be filled with the Spirit. So we don't want to stay in orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. But we want to come across on this subject to orthopraxy. And not just be able to articulate a doctrine of spirit fullness. Spirit baptism, spirit fullness. We want to actually be spirit filled. And when we come to think of being spirit-filled, when we come to obey the imperative, if you're convicted this morning and you're thinking, you know, I need to be filled with the Spirit. I see that I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not filled with the Spirit. I need to be obedient to that imperative, to be filled with the Spirit. 
We should think of fullness like sails and wind, rather than thinking of spirit fullness like water and a cup. Okay, because the Holy Spirit's not gone. The whole, God didn't give you the Holy Spirit and then take Him back. Jesus didn't pour out His Holy Spirit upon you and then gather Him up again. Remember, Romans 8. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit still. The Holy Spirit's not gone. We're just not setting our sails properly. I'm not a sailor, and I suspect most of us aren't. But I think that we can still benefit from this visual. There's obviously ways to set your sails that are going to catch the wind, and then ways to set your sails that aren't. The Holy Spirit's not gone like there's no more water in a cup. It's more like the wind's blowing, but we're not setting our sails properly. Or to use more biblical language, we're not following. After all, that's the implication of what we should be doing, according to Galatians 5.18. talks about those who are led by the Spirit. If the Spirit leads, and here we read that He does lead, the implication is that we should follow. What is He leading us to do? What is He prompting us to do? Not watch more Netflix. Not keep the gospel to yourself so that you don't offend anyone. Those promptings come from yourself at best, or worse, from the evil one. The Holy Spirit is prompting us constantly if we're Christians, to think on God, His person, His law, His glorious gospel, to talk of Him, to read of Him, to pray to Him, to serve and obey Him. These are the sorts of things that the Spirit leads us to do. Are we following? These are the sorts of promptings that bring us to a decision point, actually. Where maybe, let's say you're sitting and watching Netflix, and there's no sin in that. I'm not, I don't believe that watching TV or a movie is a sin. But let's say you're sitting there and you think to yourself, I'm, I'm kind of wasting time. I should get up and go read my Bible and pray. You're at a decision point. Do you follow the Holy Spirit at that point or not? What do you do with your sails at that point? Do you catch the wind? Or do you not? Will we be filled with the Spirit as He prompts us and leads us throughout the day? Or will we fold up our sails and coast along? One theologian has said, To be in Christ means to have communion with Him. And this in turn means that we share fully in all that He has. The most precious of all His endowments, surely is the full and overflowing indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christians, we have the tremendous privilege of having received God's Spirit, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, 
by virtue of our connection to Jesus. We have the tremendous privilege through Christ to be filled with the Spirit each day. As we've seen today, He's already been given to us. And that irrevocably. So He's not gone such that we have to conjure Him up or tarry as the disciples did before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is always blowing in our lives, so to speak, as that heavenly wind. Are our sails catching the wind?